22. You know I can't count that high. What are you doing? All right. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction, except for Doc. She's just dysfunctional. But without further ado, we're going to introduce you to our guest, Mr. Todd Fonestock. Did I get it right? Yes, that was right. All right. I will call you Todd from here on out so I don't ruin a good thing. I quit <laughs> while you're ahead, you know? <laughs> All right. There's so can a you... one and done man tonight, huh? Something like that. So, Todd, can you introduce yourself for people who don't know who you are? Sure. I'm Todd Fonestock, and I write um, high fantasy, epic fantasy. My brand is Edge of Your Seat Epic Fantasy. So all of the deep world building and deep characters, none of the boring parts. All right. Leave the boring parts out. I get it. I get it. So the next part of the introduction is how we first found them. Uh, we found Todd by him reaching out to us. And we mentioned that in his last episode. Uh, it was episode 156. And he talked about the first book in the series. But the series is almost episodic enough that we felt it would be fun to interview him about the newest one because it could stand alone or could be read as part of a series. So rather than reinventing the wheel and have him tell you that we're awesome, because we know we are, we figure we'll move on and uh, and save some space for Doc to ask the religion question. Okay. So Stargate, <laughs> Battlestar Galactica, or Warehouse 13? Oh, my gosh. I know. I'm going to, I'm going to, are we talking Battlestar Galactica? The, you know, the, um, uh, Edward Your James call. Olmos? You get to pick. I get to pick. Uh, I'm going to go you Battlestar can pick. Galactica. In the case of Battlestar Galactica, there's a New Testament and an Old Testament. Right, right. I'm going to go Battlestar Galactica, New Testament. Although I did, did like the Old Testament when I was younger. Well, I mean, it was kind of fun when you were younger, but then <laughs> it's very simplistic storytelling on the new old one when you go back and look at it. Yes, so. yes. Yes, and but the um the little Cylons are so cool. All Cylons are cool. All si yeah, I was gonna I was just about to say that. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yep. Yeah, a lot cooler than those Daleks. That's right. I said what I said. <laughs> Dalek. Whatever. Stupid. <laughs> now let the hate mail go to Seska at bastardsandplayspodcast.com. All right, Doc. Oh, Save me from my so Next is the fantasy never ending story, Labyrinth or Lady Hawk. Oh, geez, I know, right? Oh, that's tough. I've been, I've had the uh, never ending story song in my head ever since they brought it up in Stranger Things. So, um, oh man, that is really rough. I know, and there's so many great, like, you know, completely anachronistic. 80s riffs in Lady Hawk. I, I think I'm gonna just by the barest of margins go with Lady Hawk. No, wait, right, no, so, no, wait, no, Lady Hawk. Okay, we'll go with Lady Hawk. So I love Lady Hawk because these are these are new questions we haven't asked these of you yet. Uh, I'm gonna ask you just because we got a little bit of time to spare. Uh, if you had to pick uh, Battlestar Galactica, Stargate, or Warehouse 13, what would you pick? Are you talking to me or Doc? To Doc, you already oh, answered. Uh, okay. I think I'd have to go with Battlestar Galactica, but Warehouse 13 is like cozy sci-fi with a really hot guy in it. So for me, it would be like so, Stargate. I mean, it's definitely up there. 
Stargate would be like right there, but like Warehouse 13 was cool because it had Amanda Tapping in it. And she's also from Stargate. So and yeah, that would be my close second. And he's aged amazingly. And, and then, I'm so going to get grief from some of my friends about So that. never any story, Labyrinth or Ladyhawk for you. I'm going Ladyhawk. Um, I think... So I I watched Ladyhawk in my teens where I grew up on Neverending Story. Mm. So that that's where the problem is. Like, if you talk like ideology, religion, what I grew up thinking of fantasy, we're talking like Neverending Story. But Ladyhawk's the kind of story. Ladyhawk's probably like more my my jam, definitely when it comes to romance. You know, angsty and unrequited, like my life. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna say X ask the next question because I don't know if there's anything I can else I can say that won't like step in it. So <laughs> no, it's cool. Uh so which was your first love though? Science fiction or fantasy? Fantasy for sure. Oh wait, gosh. Oh, see, none well, of these questions are easy. No, they're not. Okay, so I mean fantasy is I was just marinating in it pretty much from 1981 on. But I got to say one of the most impactful moments of my life was uh, my dad driving up to the theater and there was a line around the block. And I was like, what are we doing? He's like, we're going to this new movie. It's called star Wars. And this was 1977. Right. And I'm like, what a dumb name. Like, like what are the stars? <laughs> that are like at war with that doesn't make any sense to me. And I was just not into going right at all. And so he walks up to the front of the long line and like had two tickets already. They let him right in. And I, I was thinking my dad's the coolest dad ever. Like there's like a hundred million people in this line. So we go and we sit down and I'm still thinking about this dumb name. Like I just don't understand the name, how stars could be at war with one another. And then all of a sudden, you know, that the, 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 the star just out overhead. And I'm just like, oh, and I, that's all I remember, you know, having conscious thoughts at that point. It was all just completely immersion in the movie. So I would say my first big impact was Star Wars, but fantasy was that was like throughout my childhood. I was, you know, Terry. Yeah, but there's a lot of fantasy in Star Wars. I know all the Star Wars people can hate me. I don't care. Nick's not no, here to defend himself. So that's the cool thing, dear listener, is we've interviewed some authors multiple times for various projects. And what I can, and then, you know, Doc and I think about these questions ourselves as every time we ask them. And no matter how many times you ask, they're going to have a different answer because your, your memory is weird like that, right? Yeah. So if I ask him what the very first thing he, he remembers about fantasy or sci-fi, every time he might, oh, well, there was this one thing, right? Because that's just how memory works. So having said all that, what was your first memory of, of sci-fi or fantasy? Was it the Star Wars or was there a fantasy before it? Well, do you count like, like, Disney's kind of stuff like Lady and the Tramp is fantasy. Sure. Or, or, yeah. Because yeah. like I was crazy for Lady and the Tramp. I mean, like the Tramp was was essentially the Han Solo before there was Han Solo, and I was so into his, ah. his character, right? I mean, like he was so scrappy, but it, at the same time, you know, he would he would pick fights with bigger dogs, and that was just the coolest thing to me. Uh, so I, I would say that's my earliest memory of just being so attached to a fantastical heroic character that was not, of course, you know, the the rule follower. I, I identify as chaotic good myself. So um, so like following rules is not a big thing for me. Uh, I will follow them if it's... If it's uh, I mean, there's a, a time and a place. Exactly. Like if it's a lesson. 
then uh, I'll do that. But if it's like, no, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't have any problems breaking rules. So, um, so yeah, so I would say Lady in the Tramp. I, I have a dramatic memory that's attached to it as well. So, Would you consider that urban fantasy or paranormal fantasy? Because you got anthropomorphic animals talking. so Right? I mean, like, isn't that the very definition of a fable? Like, fables is talking animals, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I don't, definitely. so I don't, I guess it would be urban fan. I don't know. I don't know if it There was the romance a little bit, so. Yeah. Paranormal sure. romance could fit, you know? Yep. I don't know. Weird. You should weigh in, dear listener, in the comments below. So, uh, so do your part and join the conversation. So what is it about the, the wider umbrella that is speculative fiction that you love so much? Um, you know, I, I, I love the trope. So I, like when I was a kid and I got into fantasy, a lot of it happened right around the time my parents got divorced. So the trope of somebody with very little power going on a journey and overcoming something with like unfathomable power that you can't possibly see a way to get past. So the whole like, you know, Frodo and Sauron kind of comparison, like that's kind of the way my world looked to me back then with this divorce that I had no idea how to stop this divorce from happening. Right. And it was definitely something I didn't want to have happening. And so this, this trope of somebody who has no power going on a journey, gaining the elixir, gaining the magic sword, gaining whatever the upper hand, and then being able to defeat the big bad guy in the end was everything I wanted at the time. And this kind of took it and put it in a way that my, my mind could process it without putting it straight as a template over the whole divorce thing that was going on. So I think that's what really drew me and really pulled me into fantasy was that, that fantasy trope. And it could do, you could do it in a hundred different ways. Not to mention the fact that I didn't want to be in my life at that point. Like it sucked. Like everything was going South. Right. And, uh, and these fantasy lands is like, oh, you can go away to where, you know, everybody's beautiful and they all wear swords and ride horses and there are dragons and griffins and all kinds of cool things, oh, oh, right? No, let's also face it. Sometimes we just like going away where somebody else's life sucks more than ours. And there's that as well. You know? So how did your <laughs> love of... Watch the news. <laughs> so how did your love of speculative fiction writ large transition into you deciding to write stories in that space? Um, gosh, how did I, where, like there was, it was high school. It was my senior year of high school and, um, I had an independent study and I, I had taken this independent study where I was going to write a novel. <laughs> it's interesting that my current brand is edge of your seat, epic fantasy, because I remember saying very specifically to myself, I want to write a fantasy book with more action in it. That's what I, that, that was my thing. I was like, I love fantasy so much. But like there are some parts that just aren't moving fast enough for me. So I wanted to recreate what I love so much about it, but like have it have it keep moving, you know, just just really tighten it up and make sure that there is no moment where you're kind of like, okay, I don't I don't want to hear any more about the description of the wardrobe. Let's, you know, let's move on. Let's let's find out what happens next. So what you're saying is if they made a movie and Doc fell asleep, when she woke back up, she wouldn't say, Oh, they're still walking. <laughs> Not in one of my books, no. That that is my father's review of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, that always struck me as amusing. So her dad got cool points for that one. <laughs> so most authors will let their own real life experience influence the way they tell stories. So do you feel like there's any specific moment that shapes you as a storyteller? Uh so many moments. I mean, I could 
I could go through all the various series that I've written and the various stories that I've written and show you like how the main character represented what I wanted to become at that time. And even if it's not something that I want to become anymore, like at the time that was, that was what I wanted, you know I mean? Like I, I could go. So Threadweavers is a good example. Like Threadweavers was a series that I started writing on when I was, going from high school to college. I was like on my own. Like I told you, my parents divorced at 14. They moved to different parts of California and I wanted to stay in Colorado. So I was on my own at 16, right? I was staying with friends and doing that. So I was like having this adventure already. And the character that I was writing about at the time, Metafay, who also is called Wildman, he's the name of the, the title character of the book, um, was like, he was a demigod, right? He could do anything. He was ultra competent and had all the power in the world. And that was what I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to to be able to face the world and whatever it might throw at me. Right. And then there are various other iterations of characters, you know, characters that can't commit and that sort of thing that were sort of reflecting uh, my attitudes at certain parts of my life. Um, so yeah, I would say straight down the line, every book I've ever written has some kind of emotional or psychological workbook that I'm trying to work through in the story and through the characters for sure. All right, Doc. Next questions are your favorite ones. You were talking pre-show about this even. The fandom stuff. Transitioning into the fandom. Have you had any cool fan art or cosplay yet? Um, actually, yeah. So I was at Colorado Springs Comic Con um, a couple years ago. And these uh, two young people came up. I think one of them was 19 and one of them was 17. And they were cosplaying something. I think one of them was like... Um, Elsa from Frozen and uh, gosh, it was the other one. I can't remember what they were cosplaying, but like they were just so utterly charming. And I, and they came up and I gave them a pitch to my stories and they were like all aglow. And each one of them bought a book and each one of them went home that night and they read part of the book and they came back on the second day of the con and they're like, on the third day, I'm going to cosplay one of your characters. And one of them cosplayed Gruffy the Griffin, who is like my middle grade series. And one of them cosplayed uh, Adora, who was in my Fair Mist series. And they nailed it. Like Adora was perfect. She was so great. Um, and Gruffy was like the interpretation because Gruffy is a griffin, right? And, and uh, they came in and they had like, you know, feathers on their fingers and they, they had just really done this really cool uh, interpretation of that character as a, as a human. It was really great. It was really great. I was so excited. That is, it's a really special moment, I think. Yeah. Because so, cosplayers put a lot of them into it, so you know they really loved that character. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, I was stunned at how well they portrayed them. That's awesome. I love hearing those stories. But have you had, how was your first autograph signing? And like, was it planned or was were you just like, surprised and going home? The very first of all time? Yeah, like the first time somebody asked you about your, how to sign a book. Yeah, so that would have been at Walden Books back in 1992, I'm going to say. I got a short story published in a Dragonlance anthology, Dragons, Dragonlance Tales 2, Volume 2, The Cataclysm. Uh, my, my very first ever published short story was Seekers in that anthology. 
And I went down and sat at Walden Books and I had a few people come in. Like I was, I was floored, but most of them were my friends or college friends, uh, my, I mean, like college friends or family. And this one guy came in and, and it was so funny. Like I'd, I'd never met him before. And he was clearly a teenager. He was clearly like 14, 15, something like that. And he was like kind of hanging at the edge of the crowd and he was like clutching the book, you know, and he's like, he was too afraid to come up and meet me. And I'm just like, I'm just completely giddy to be there. Right. And finally he's like, will you sign my book? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then he's like, kind of, you know, kind of really reserved. And then he's like, your story was my favorite. Like it was this big secret. Like, you know, he had to tell me in confidence just in case any of the other authors were in the, you know, in the bookstore and would take offense to him telling me that my story was his favorite. So I will remember that for the rest of my life. I mean, that was quite a few years ago for me. Um, and that, that was my very first signing was that, that one. And that's what I remembered from it. There were other that people that were there. Awesome. That's so have you spotted somebody? That's an amazing story. It really is. So because that that's a very impressionable age. So oh, yeah. um, have you spotted somebody reading one of your books in the wild? Like unintended, you're walking by and you're like, oh, oh. Um, I've had people send me pictures of that, but like, I don't know that I've ever like at an airport or something like that, just kind of looked over and see somebody reading one of my books. I will, however, uh, I did have a moment where someone recognized me in the most ridiculously un unimaginable place. So in 2020, I went hiking the Colorado Trail with my 14-year-old son. We hiked 450 miles from Denver all the way to Durango over the Rockies, like 14,000 foot peaks um, over the course of five weeks. And we were in the middle of nowhere hiking the trail and getting water. We were like, we were filtering water from this little trickling stream. And there were a couple other hikers that had kind of congregated there before they headed up this tall mountain they were about to head up to. And one of them was like, you know, so what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a novelist. Uh, and he's like, oh, what do you write? I'm like, well, epic fantasy. Um, I, my name is Todd Faunastock. And he was like, I've heard of you. I'm like, really? <laughs> this guy's like in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. I'm like, are you from Colorado? He's like, no, I'm from Florida. And I was like, wow, that's cool. Because I mean, if he was local, that would make a little more sense to me because I've got a fairly large presence uh, here in Denver and Colorado Springs. But he was from freaking Miami or something like that. So that was, that made me feel really good. That's awesome. And with your son there, so he got to see that you actually are cool. Right? But According to my son, no parents is ever cool. Yeah, exactly. So that, okay, that's probably like the craziest because I was going to ask you what the funniest story of, and you kind of just answered it, unless you got something funnier about interacting with the fan. Um, I'm trying to think. No, that was, that was probably the most unusual that I can that's think of. That's kind of hard to top in all fairness. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a hard to top one. I mean, we were in the so middle JR, of nowhere. It's your turn. Like we were in the wilderness, right? And and somebody knew who I was. That was pretty cool. <laughs> or they were stalking you. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Which would also be a cool story. So either way, you win. Assuming you survived. Yes, that would be a cool story. Assuming you survive. <laughs> so this is the part where we ask you, Todd, about all of the books you have written. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version of the various standalone? Uh, short stories and series you've uh, you've written in? Oh, that I've written? Oh my gosh, I thought you said read. Of all the stuff you've read, I'm like, holy crap, like there's no way. I can't give you that. Okay, I don't so, think yeah, anybody so... we've interviewed would ever be able to answer that without going over the 12-hour mark. I was going to say, we <laughs> just go on and on and on. Um, so yeah, so uh, 
one of my most early series is my Threadweaver series. There are four books in it. It's Wild Mane, The Godspill, Threads of Amarion, and God of Dragons. And that is a complete series. Um, and let me know if you want me to give you like my, cause I do, I go to cons a lot. So I give pitches for these books that are like, you know, two minutes long. If you want me to do a pitch, you just, you know, I'd rather talk about the book we brought you here for. So I just, the reader's I just version is good enough. I just, that's right. You said, you said that from the very beginning. Okay. There's my whisper Prince trilogy, which I just finished. It is, um, fair mist undying man. And the recently released back in December, the slate wizards, um, so that's that's another complete series. I've got my Tower of the Four series where the first story arc is complete. There are six episodes, about 30,000 words a piece, um, and two omnibuses of those uh, six episodes that are that are like, you know, two volumes. And um, so that one's ongoing. I've got my Wishing World series. I had mentioned it before. It is essentially for fourth graders and up. It's kind of my answer to Harry Potter. Uh, it's all about a girl and her griffin uh, going on an adventure in a land created by uh, children's imaginations. Um, there's two books in that series with the third one almost done i anticipate that's going to be seven book series i've got um i've got my one-offs is what i call them charlie fiction which is a time travel novel um with a twist that nobody ever sees coming i love that story um and then i've got uh ordinary magic which is my only non-fiction memoir of that trip that i just mentioned that that uh uh, 450 mile, five week trek from Denver to Durango uh, on the Colorado trail with my 14 year old son. We almost died. Uh, I almost died twice. Um, uh, it's a great story. It's, it's all true told with the flair of somebody who writes <laughs> epic fantasy. Right. Um, and then there's summer of the fetch, which is one of the ones that's really close to my heart. Um, it is a modern myth, essentially. It is a set in 1988 coming of age road trip fantasy or road trip story with a twist of magic in it. So that is my my pantheon. And of course, Eldros Legacy, which we're going to get into. Absolutely. All right. So that was the Reader's Digest version, people. And because I want to have time to really dive in without interruptions, we're going to play a little bit out of cycle, but we're going to play the commercial right now where we pause for a moment and we shamelessly shill for the man. If Princess Lenathena cannot stave off civil war, then a mad goddess will surely take the throne. The king of Lithonia is dying. When he is gone, Lithonia will be ruled by either a cruel sadist or a six-year-old boy. Princess Lenathena Morthon is third in line and she has no intention of letting her country burn. She will do whatever she must to protect her people, even if that means leaving the country she loves. When the mad goddess of Hathor sets her gaze upon Lithonia's throne, the king decides to use Princess Lenathena as a bargaining chip with his closest allies in Kaeldanon. Now stranded in a foreign country, away from her center of political power, Lenathena must use every tool at her command to scrape together allies and save her country from a fate worse than death. But will her would-be husband be one of those allies? or just another enemy. Author Christina Gruel de debuts with a dark, high-stakes political fantasy where every new face hides a potential threat. Pick up From the Ashes and discover the shadow games that will determine the future of several nations. All right, so thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. And obviously those all sound fascinating. But uh, we're here to talk about Ren the Traveler, which is the in the Eldros Legacy universe. So where did you get the premise for both the universe and then the story? 
So the universe was and is crafted by not only the four founding authors, um, Quincy J. Allen, uh, Marie Whitaker, and Mark Stallings and myself, but also a number of cohort authors that are, are coming in to write in the playground and they kind of uh, um, add to it. So so essentially the, the brainchild that happened a long, uh, gosh, two years ago now, a little bit more than two years ago, um, uh, and we came up with this notion of these these five different continents that are on this world and each one of us took a continent and then the the fifth continent is there's sort of this continent of mystery so it doesn't have a founder that's running it at the moment and um and the other four are those are you know us creating kind of a dnd style story um on each of the continents building our story for three or four volumes at which point the stories are going to start crossing over and you're going to see the meta plot start to coalesce and come together so um uh, I go to a lot of cons, and as I mentioned before, and the pitch for this one is 2,000 years ago, the world of Eldros was ruled by 15-foot-tall, highly magical, highly intelligent giants. Now, all the rest of the races, the mortal races, the humans, the luminants, the Shadowvar, the dwarves, the elves, all of them were slaves to this one master race. And then there was a revolution. They overthrew their overlords, and during the war, half the giants were killed, and half the giants fled and vanished. Now, imagine, if you will, 2,000 years later when the story opens, like, we're humans. We've got a short attention span, right? So, <laughs> right? So, 2,000 years, we don't think the giants actually existed, right? They, The giants to them would be like Zeus and Apollo would be to us, right? We know the names, we know the stories, but we don't think they were ever actually real, right? Well, the giants have not forgotten. And they want their world back. So in the shadows, they're building an army that when they're ready to unleash it upon us, it will be impossible for us to stop them. Unless, of course, we have a group of heroes who can do the impossible. So that's kind of the, the catch. And then we start with Kaivin the Unkillable, which is the first in the um, uh, in my storyline story and the first one that we're recommending people pick up just in general. I mean, you can access the story from any of the founders individual beginning novels because they begin different stories with different characters on their continents um but you know right now we've got three books or we will when ren comes out in legacy of shadows which is my continent noxanon so that's kind of how we're we're telling people you know if they say how do we, how do we access that this we're like there's four different places but start with kaivin because it will it will pull you into the story and you'll get at least three books to get your feet wet before you move on to different stories Okay, and when does your book come out? The um, Ren the Traveler. So it comes out February seventh, um, and it is oh. the third. Sorry, go ahead. It'll be out when this episode airs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Outstanding. Outstanding. It'll actually have been out for a, a whopping total of a week. So get it while it's hot, people, and then leave a review because that helps uh, helps authors. So before we dig into the story itself, we are going to take a moment and and peep that cover, and you can tell us the story behind this cover art. Oh, cool. Cool. Yes. Right. Actually, this cover art, um, that's Ren. I just love Ren. Ren is one of my personal favorite characters. She's she's very um charismatic. Uh she is she's a queen, so she has to, you know, um direct uh, people where to go and she has to command loyalty and all that stuff, and she's really good at it. Mm -hmm. Not to mention she is nearly the finest blade in the kingdom. Now, of course, Kaivin the Unkillable is probably the, well, he's definitely the finest blade in the kingdom, and they actually match swords in Kaivin the Unkillable, the very first one. And um, 
uh, he, he beats her just by a little bit. So, I mean, like her prowess is, is stunning. And you see that when this book opens. So, uh, the opening of this book, she has been abducted and has been taken to one of the other continents. Now, most people don't believe that there are any other continents. They are completely isolated from one another. And the only way to get to them is through an archway that looks exactly like the front of this cover, um, called a Thuros. And it, it is this, this teleportation portal. And you can, uh, when they were working 2000 years ago, you could go between the continents at will, but now they have been defunct. They have been inactive for all those two millennia. And at the end of Laurel, um, Ren gets snatched by a giant and taken through this portal and put into a completely new land in Daemonon, which is Quincy's continent. So I kind of went over to Quincy's side of the fence and got to play in his, his world for a little while. Um, and so she has to, uh, um, uh, she has to gain her feet on that, but you asked about the cover. So there's actually something really cool about this cover. So my artist is Rashid Alakroka and he is fantastic. He's from Kuwait. Um, and I met him, he went to school at Boulder and CU and that's, that's how I got to know him and he does all my covers. Um, and this is actually a piece of a larger cover. Um, in fact, the, all five characters are in this banner that I, that I, Put up this eight foot by eight foot banner that I put up at my cons. And this is her, like they're all standing around a table and this is where she is standing around this table. So he essentially isolated this for a cover for this one. And you'll see the other pieces in subsequent covers. And then of course I'm making a poster that will be at my next con. I just ordered the posters um, that will have this whole image with all five of them, the warrior, the rogue, the ranger slash queen, which is what she is, the magic user, and then this race called a shadow bar. He's kind of the spiritual, uh, the cleric of the group, I, I guess would be a, the closest D&D category that I would put for him. So before Doc asks her questions, I'm going to interrupt. So you mentioned that you went into Quincy's world because of the, the setup. So does that mean you guys are collaborating when you're doing your outlines on your individual story so it's coherent or is it just sort of, Come as you can and, and the you know, wild make it feral land of authors. <laughs> Absolutely. We actually have quite a few phone conversations on um, trying to tie in the meta plot elements. So the the person who abducted her is this giant called Nevelos, right? And Nevelos, he's kind of like, oh gosh, like an evil Gandalf. Except he's not evil. He's, I would say he's dead neutral. Now, his goal is to make sure that the giants don't completely destroy all the mortal races. He's actually on our side, but he's not a good guy. He will happily kill you to make sure that his his game goes the way that he... So he's, he sees the world as a chessboard, right? And everybody are pieces. And pieces are meant to be sacrificed when you need to sacrifice them. So he doesn't care about you personally. He cares about... The, the entire game board, right? So that makes him a bit of a bastard at many different instances. For example, taking Ren away from her friends and kidnapping her to this other place because he wants to force her to become what he sees she's going to need to be when the fur starts to fly, when the, when the war comes down, right? Um, so this is a character that is going to be seen in every single storyline because he's a busybody. He's going around making sure all his pieces are where he wants them to be. Um, so he's a fascinating character. I would say he's true neutral. He won't hesitate to do things that are good if he needs to, and he won't hesitate to do things that are horrible if he needs to, to get what he wants done. Um, 
so yeah, so he's that that's that's definitely one of the things that ties all of the stories together. And there are many other things too. I mean, now that Ren has gone over to Quincy's, I've got three books in mind, and on the third book, she kind of crossed over into Quincy's world and met some of his his world building characters. He's got these these uh, characters called guardians that are essentially attached to the throne, and they go out and essentially dispense justice and do other things for the king within the kingdom, right? And she meets one of them uh, when she's in a cage. Uh, they've captured her and they're about to put her to death. And, and, you know, he comes in and interviews her. Um, I won't tell you why I don't want to give you any spoilers, but, um, but that's like a very distinct piece of Quincy's world. And in this story, um, the bad guy is a necromancer. And so one of the, one of the cohort authors that's writing in Quincy's world is sort of connecting to that story of necromancy. And she's going to be doing the necromancy in her story and there's going to be a linkage between his book that he used to make his his undead creatures and the information that she uses to make her undead creatures so wherever we can we are creating linkages oh it helps if i unmute myself okay that sounds interesting all right so before we dive in more to the specific series doc uh let's 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 follow the script here and you've got your question i don't want to interrupt you Really? You Again. don't? <laughs> so, okay. So what is your 30-second elevator pitch for this book? 30-second elevator pitch for Ren. See, I haven't put this together yet because I don't have it on my con table. Okay, so give me a second. I'll get you, I'll get you a 30-second pitch. Okay, so okay, abducted from her room, separated from her friends, Ren is thrust into a completely foreign land where she has to learn how to essentially charm the locals and build a base of power so she can escape. The only way to escape is through the key that is held by this giant named Nevelos, the, the one that abducted her and brought her here. If she can get that key, she can get back home. But there's a whole lot of things between her and getting that key, and not the least of which is that Nevelos can see the future. He can see what you're going to do. So trying to surprise him is going to be almost impossible for her. Um, so that's that's my best 30-second pitch for right now. I there's also vampires. I, I I you know, I didn't even get to the vampires. Oh, don't forget vampires. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a pretty good 30-second elevator pitch. Thank you. So you've talked about some of that actually about what makes this series special in all the different things is there anything else you'd want to add that makes this truly a unique world yeah so i worked with clark roans and he's got this um this book for fantasy authors specifically um that that uh helps you build magic systems and the magic so i sat down with him at pikes peak writers conference last year and we hashed out like the basics of this. And he's he's uh, got a chemistry background. So essentially what I think is really cool about this, I mentioned there are vampires. They're never called vampires in the story. So essentially they're using what's called life magic in this world. There are five types of magic in this world. Lore magic, life magic, land magic, uh, line magic, and love magic. Those are the five. And life magic has all to do, of course, with different forms of life, right? I mean, if you were going to be a druid, that would be like a life magic kind of thing. So essentially what this guy has the ability to do is he can take 
life force from one thing, this, this, this villain, this, this necromancer can take life force from one thing and put it into something dead and bring the tissue back to life. Now, the cool thing about it is essentially the tissue has to be prepared first. So he's got to put it in this chemical bath, right? Um, and, and essentially soak the body for a while so that it can receive this magic. And the more he soaks it and, uh, in the dark, like soaks it in the dark, the more powerful the creature will be. So essentially there is a, um, a ratio between how dark he can get it in the room. Cause he still has to see, right? Cause he's blind and he's got to do the things that he's doing. So if you can make the solution and soak them in the dark and then make the transfer in the dark, they have higher strength, like super powered strength. They can move faster. They're actually retain more of their previous memories. Cause like he can make, he, he sort of progresses from making really dumb sort of shambling zombie type creatures to these things that are the higher level. He calls them his primes. Um, that are bloodsuckers. Essentially, they he, he starts this siphon within them. Like So he puts life force into them, but the life force is ebbing. Whereas our bodies, we eat food and it replenishes the life force that we're, you know, that we're generating, right? Well, with these dead bodies, they don't replenish their own life force. So once he injects them with this life, it starts to ebb and they have to find fresh life elsewhere. And the, the straightest fountain of that is blood. So, so essentially if they go and they drink a bunch of, you know, blood, it's the life force from that person's life that they're sucking into themselves. And that's how they perpetuate themselves. So anyway, so the, the downside, of course, because we're kind of keeping with some of the tropes of vampires, right? The downside is that this chemical solution is highly reactive, like violently reactive to light. So they're soaked in this stuff. It is part of their makeup. And if you put them in the sunlight, I mean, they start exploding, like just their, their body just starts like exploding off of them because the, the soaked body parts cannot stand. It's just highly reactive. They're explosive. It's like phosphorus and water, right? <laughs> they just blow up. So that is, and I just, I love the way that, uh, you know, and it was, it was me and Clark kind of working with this, but I love the way that everything can be explained. I mean, you'd almost believe that it would actually be real. Um, uh, so I love all the detail that I, we were able to put into this version of creating a quote unquote vampire. Is that kind of along the lines of what you were thinking? I think it works. So it's a bit more, but that's okay. <laughs> we are able to adjust on that. So it's great. Um, what other tropes did you use that you really had fun playing with in this? Um, so it's definitely a journey uh, like that, that the trope of, you know, being sort of lost and alone and, and, uh, having to, to kind of get yourself out of this mess because she's far away from any resources she would normally have. She's not even in her own, you know, continent, uh, her, her, let alone her own kingdom or her own palace. Right. So she's got to be resourceful. And the cool thing is this character is the one thing that I love about this character. She's very upbeat. She's always positive. She's constantly working problems. Um, and she's eminently competent, right? So we get to see that all in the beginning. But she is so ridiculously overmatched, right? I mean, like this this giant is better than her in all ways. He's faster. He's stronger. He's smarter. He knows more about the future. He's got five different, you know, sources of magic that he can pull from. He is just so impossible to defeat, right? And yet she's going to try to do this. Well, um, there's a, a crux and a growing moment where she has to, she's taken out of the realm where she actually can be um, 
she can be effective. Like she is, she's taken straight to the wall and beyond it. So she gets broken down into a character that it's really hard to be optimistic when what happens to you, like what happened to her happens to you. I mean, like what happened to you? It, she goes through the ringer. She goes through the grinder. And I, that was one of the, one of the hardest struggles for me, because like I said, I love this character so much. And there was a moment where I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do this horrible thing to her. And how are she, how will she ever be able to be upbeat ever again? Right. Uh, and facing that was just, I don't know. That was so, so that's, that's the trope that I was, that I was going for is this transformation trope, which most fantasy novels have, you know, you've got this character arc where the character has to learn something that they weren't planning to learn. Um, and, uh, and so that, so that, that would, that would be the main the main trope and the main character arc that that she goes through. Okay, you answered several questions in one, and we'll take it. So, were there any secondary characters that you were especially memorable to you that you liked? Yes, absolutely. Probably what I'm guessing is going to be the fan favorite of this book uh, was a throwaway character. Okay, so this throwaway character. So, in the beginning of the story. Ren is trying to build her base of power and she wants to steal this key that I mentioned before that, that Nevelos has so that she can get through the Thoros, the magical portal that will take her home, right? And the only way to get through it is this coin, this key that looks just like this. Show that up for you there. Hold on, hold on. Give me a second. I'm going to put you solo layout. Okay. Um, oh, there you go. Is that right? Is it the right yes. direction too? Yes, that is the key. Cool. It doesn't, it doesn't say Elder's Legacy Noxon on the back in the story, but it does have those symbols in the story. Um, so that is that is what is called a plunos, which is the key. And essentially, it's a coin that you flip against the um, flip against the uh, the portal of the Thoros, and every continent has their own. Here, I'll show you this. This is pretty cool. There. Oh, okay. Hold on. Hold on. You, you got me right when I thought you were done. All right, I know. I was almost done. I was putting it back in its case. Um, to oh, show that's cool. This. So that is Elder's Legacy. And it's all the five continents. They're different symbols. Each continent has a symbol. And then one at the top is Noxanon, which is my continent. So, um, so anyways, she decides that she's going to seduce this blacksmith, right? And he's totally a pawn. Like she's, she's building her power base here through her charisma, through whatever. So she's going to seduce this blacksmith so that he will make her this intricate duplicate of his coin. And then she's going to swap it out, right? She's going to, she's going to get close to Nebulos and then make the swat, the switch, right? So that she'll get the real one. He'll get the fake one. And then she's out of here, right? So the character Imaz, the blacksmith, like I said, was just going to be a throwaway character. He was going to be like a maybe one chapter, maybe two chapter character. Well, after I struggled with this whole transformation that happens to her in the midpoint of the book, she ends up needing help, right? And so she goes to him, her, her lover, right? Essentially that she was using, completely using, um, and goes to him for help and he helps her. He's like the super cool guy that is just like, obviously you're in trouble and I will help you. And even though he realizes that she manipulated him and may still be manipulating him, you know, he rises, uh, to, to, uh, a noble level and, and helps her. And you just, you just fall in love with this character. He's just such a great guy, you know, um, <clears throat> in fantasy stories, there's so many bastards and to have somebody that's just through and through a great guy is, uh, Oh yeah. And it's on the, that's the coin on the front of the, the, the book cover as well that indicates that it is in the continent of Noxanon. So anyways, yes. Imaz, the blacksmith 
is one of those side characters that I was not, I didn't see him coming, did not see him coming. He just grew into a very essential, very beloved part of the story. So if she's using her feminine wiles to get her way and going to use and, and discard him, that means you set her up as almost as a, as a, not the perfect hero, but more, more human, I guess. Cause sometimes sure. they're almost too perfect. Yes, for sure. Uh, but, but the thing is, I mean, like we open up the story. I mean, you, it's one of those things that it's it's not a nice thing to do, but considering the crap hand she's been dealt and the fact that she is like essentially a walking prisoner in this place, like you almost feel like, yeah, whatever you can do, sister, get it done. You know, I mean, like however you can escape this place, do it, do what you can. Um, I feel like I don't feel like too many people are going to judge her. Maybe they will, but I don't feel that too many people are going to judge her for just trying to do whatever she can. Cause like I said, the opponent she's up against is just beyond, right? I mean, it's like trying to fight a superhero. So given all the mean things you did to her and setting her up against the overpowered bad guy who can't be defeated, but somehow I'm sure will be, uh, if your character, if Ren met you in a back alley after the hell you put her through, how do you see that interaction playing out? She would kill me. <laughs> what about the blacksmith? Would he kill you too? Um, I don't think the blacksmith is that kind of guy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Ren, Ren would kill me for sure. <laughs> and I feel bad. Like, I don't, I don't want her to hate me, but, and that was, there was a, there was a struggle. Um, and in fact, I, we have a creatives meeting for Elder's Legacy <clears throat> every other Thursday. And we talk about story and we talk about what we got going on. And I pitched this thing to them and I can't tell you what it was because I don't want to spoil the big midpoint shift for Ren, but essentially I pitched this thing to him and I had three different versions. One where I just went all in one where I did it kind of, you know, half or at, like I kind of did it. And then I took it away and made it, you know, okay. And then one where I didn't do it at all. And I told them about the one where well, I'm thinking I'm just going to do it and then I'm going to take it away. And they were like, Oh, that sucks. Don't do that. No, if you're going to do it, go all the way. So they essentially pushed me and I was like, well, fine, I'll do that. You know, because I was resisting, doing this horrible thing to her. I'm like, fine, I'll do that. But you know, if I hate it, I'm going to undo it. And once I wrote it, I knew that was the story. That was, that was the way it had to be. I mean, as horrible as it was, boy, it made me riveted to the page for the rest of the story. Um, what you want. <clears throat> I think when an author says that about a book, it's always a really good sign for the reader. Or when they struggle, when they hate themselves. Well, not just that, but when they're they're tied into the story and they can't put the story away either, I think it generally means it turns into a really good book and experience for everybody involved. Maybe not so much for the characters, but you know, yeah. that's what you they're know there. What's even worse when you have a co-author and they kill your darlings. I mean, I'm not bitter <laughs> yet. But... It's okay, uh, Jr. You should be used to it by now. So, speaking of killing your darlings, because you're sharing a universe. Do you guys have to agree on which character lives and which character dies together? Or do you have autonomy over your, um, your larger universe? So we have autonomy over any characters we've created. Right. And if there's a crossover character like Nevelos, for example, um, I originally created Nevelos, but now he's been put into many different stories. Um, essentially what I say is, yeah, use him. I mean, if you're wanting to kill him, that's probably not a good idea because he's important for the, the end of the story. But usually it's like, let me know what you want um, uh, as far as the dialogue. And then and then I get to go through it and say, okay, I think he wouldn't say it this way. And we just kind of massage it until it's 
until it works for both of us. That's kind of what we do with shared characters. And there hasn't really been a problem. You'd think that that would might cause an extreme, you know, fight or something like that, but it hasn't yet. Pretty much if I use one of Quincy's characters or if, for example, writing in Quincy's world, like I went to Damon on with this whole story and man, I worked with him I'm like, okay, this is where I, I, I don't, I need a patch of land where you haven't had any of your story involved yet. And he's like, well, you could use this. I'm like, can I make a barony there? He's like, yeah, yeah. Make a barony. I mean, like we just kind of went back and forth until we fleshed it out. And, um, and we were both really happy with it. So um, we talked in the pre-show, and I'm, I'm stepping on your feet again, Doc. I'm sorry. I'm a horrible dance partner. But um, we talked in the pre-show, and you know, when we interviewed you the first time, the book was with CKP, Chris Kennedy Publishing, as part of their fantasy wing. Uh, and you had some plans with it. And since that interview a year ago, things have changed. So um, – so could you tell us about that change and what you guys plan to do with that? Sorry, which which change are we talking about? So, so you were part of CKP Publishing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And now you have uh, morphed, grown, done, yes. do Yes, okay. So, yeah. So um, CKP Publishing essentially kind of fostered us and, like, took us up to a certain level at which point – um, we asked Chris if we could purchase the rights back from him and say, Hey, we want to, we want to do Eldros legacy press and just do Eldros books. Do, you know, would you be amenable to, you know, selling the licensing rights back to the books? I mean, of course the copyrights belong to the different authors, you know, the cohorts as well as the founders, but the licensing rights, the ability to put them out into the world, publish them, all that stuff, uh, belong to CKP. And he said, sure. And he quoted a surprise. I won't get into numbers, but he quoted a surprise. You know, we paid the price and then we got the licensing right backs to all these books and we just re-released them in January. Um, the first nine, uh, the the nine books that we had. So we're really excited about this re-release. They're all under Eldros Legacy Press now. We actually changed up the order a little bit because when we first started releasing them, you know, we were kind of coming out with like the first book of every story. And now on Amazon, it lists Kyven and then Laurel and then Ren, all three books in a singular story to kind of get the reader in and get them started. Um, and then they can kind of start jumping to the other, uh, the other stories. So it's, it's, it, one of the, one of the comments we got last year was that people weren't sure exactly how to access it. So now we've got a very streamlined, um, uh, well, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you look at um, Mercedes Lackey's Valdemar world, right? She wrote that in triplet, in, all of it in trilogies, really. Mm. And it made it so that readers were solidly in the world and then looking for something else within that world. Plus, it was also a little less overwhelming, I think, for her, especially in an era before indie publishing was what it is, when most series weren't in the double digits. Yeah. Yep. So that's, that's, so that's exactly it. When you crossed over, uh, I don't say crossover, maybe it's not the best expression, but when you bought the series and you made it your own thing because you had bigger plans um, and you kind of wanted to be your own boss, which I totally get. And um, um, as I understand it, you left CKP on good terms. He's a good guy. So, I mean, oh, yeah. it's nothing like that. You just oh, you had yeah. plans. When you did that, did all of the books cross over? Um, yeah, so essentially <clears throat> there there were originally five founders of this, um, and Rob Howell was one of those founders, and he had, he was just so overwhelmed with so many things that were going on at that moment, and he's like, look, this is a good opportunity. What's that? That's because Rob has a bad habit of saying yes <laughs> without looking at what's on his schedule. 
I love the man. He's a great man. He really he likes to say yes. And then go, and then he's left going, oh. Yeah. And, and he, he never was, complains about it. He just, he just digs in and does the work. Yep. He's a, he's a friendly guy. I really like him. If you haven't checked out Rob Howe's books, you ought to check him out. He's a good guy. He's a great guy. I'm actually going out. I'm going to be staying with him uh, for Planet Comic Con. I'll be out there for Planet Comic Con. So I'll be cool. actually uh, staying at his house. Um, so yeah, so he just essentially said, look, this is a good moment. And I would like to step back and just kind of like, you know, be on the periphery, you know, maybe be a cohort author at some point down the, the road, but I don't want to be part of the founding group anymore. So he just kind of stepped back during that departure from CKP. Um, also on really great terms. I mean, like we, we all love Rob. He's a great guy. Um, and so we we essentially moved forward with the meta plot um, with the with the remaining four founders. Okay. okay. Were there any other? Well, that makes... Oh, go ahead, Doc. I was going to say that, that makes sense, but I wanted to get back to one of my our favorite questions in all of this because while this is fascinating, and I think we could always do a great discussion maybe one day about how you do shared worlds. I want to know of all the magic in this universe, of which there seems to be plenty, yeah. would you want in to bring to life in this universe for your use? Before oh. you answer that, hold on. I don't know that you've really explained. You explained the magic is based on chemistry, right? Is there anything else to it, or is that the one style of magic? Make sure that's clear first. I'm sorry. Oh, the... the, the um... Your magic system is it the, what you explained earlier? The only, or are there multiple oh. layers of magic? Oh no, no, no! Multiple, multiple layers. What I explained earlier was like one aspect of one of the five paths of magic. So in this world, if you're a human, you really only have the ability, if you even have that, to do one stream of magic. And I mentioned the five streams of magic: lore magic, line magic, love magic, uh, land magic, which is like you know physical magic, like like airbending, elemental magic, that kind of stuff, and then. Um, Love magic. Did I say love magic? Yes. Oh, life magic. And then life magic. So the necromancy is one small aspect of life magic. Okay. Um, now, if you're a giant, you can use all five, which is what makes the giants so powerful. So if I had to choose, so, okay. So, so Kaivin the Unkillable has a special magical ability. He doesn't even realize he's magical, but I think I would probably choose his ability. And his ability is, so I mentioned lore magic. So lore magic is essentially what Gandalf does, okay? So Gandalf, every now and then, you'll see Gandalf do like a display of fire and magic or whatever, like when he fights the Balrog, right? But most of the time, is Gandalf like, you know, throwing fireballs and things like He's not. He's just always in the right place at the right time. Right. I mean, like he's there and he moves events in small ways that then makes the entire whole come together favorably at the end. Right. And he nurtures these little these little um, potential timelines, I guess, is what I will call them. So lore magic essentially allows you to kind of look at the butterfly effect. OK, so you like 10 years before something happens, you start aligning these things called. Um, uh, oh, gosh, what do we call them? Curioi or something like that. I can't remember. They're, they're like lines of possibility, right? They're, they're potential timelines, right? And you start aligning them so that they go the direction that you want them to go. So most of the time it takes years, decades, sometimes centuries to affect the, the probability that you want. Well, Kaivin has a limited form of line magic. 
and it does not tell him what the future is going to be, but it does warn him a microsecond before something happens, right? So it's almost like a precognitive ability, and he uses it as a combat ability. So essentially, it manifests to him as a blue wind, and it comes at him like if there's if there's somebody he's fighting with a sword, there will be this slash of blue wind that will come in front of him, and if he moves out of the way of that blue slash, the sword will miss him or a spear is like poking at him is the sort of like spear of blue wind. If he moves to the side and gets out of the way of that spear of blue wind, the spear itself that is like a microsecond behind will miss him. So this enables him to be ridiculously good at fighting, right? Because he's got this, this, this precognitive ability. So I think that would be pretty cool to be able to know like when danger is almost like having a spider sense, right? Like to know when danger is coming like a split second before it arrives. That seems fair. I, I like that one. I mean, it's not as flashy, but I kind of like it even better because it's not. <laughs> so, but I mean, my favorite anime characters always move like that too, so. That uh, was... What? I was going to say that that was um, very subtle for you, Doc. Most of the time, you like the flashy stuff, so I'm surprised that that was how you, what you would have picked too. Junior, I don't always like the flashy stuff. I like you, and you're not flashy at all. Ouch. Ouch. You know what? I'm going to go cry in my room right now, and, and instead, uh, you get to ask the follow-on question. Um, how he would abuse it. Oh, so yeah. How would you that. abuse it? I'm like, wait, what? Oh, how would I abuse it? Yeah, if you had that power. I, I don't know. To quote the Winter Soldier, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, you know, ultimate fighting. Just a great idea off the top of my head, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, know. It does, that does seem a little obvious, but I think it works, you know. <laughs> I don't know how else you would abuse it except in a, a fight, at least so far. I mean, his power is evolving, so. I mean, you later. would be an amazing MMA fighter with that. Right, right. Um, I mean, you still have to be pretty fit because you, you know, would get tuckered out. But uh, like maybe, maybe something like from Groundhog Day, where like he he knows exactly, like he he sort of spends the time to like pay attention to things and knows exactly when they're going to happen right before they happen. So I guess maybe you could use it to that effect somehow. So we talked some about the magic system, but and you and you've definitely created giants, and we've talked a little bit about vampires. But are there any? other magical creatures that you've kind of gone about creating for this so many magical creatures so in my continent of what's Gotham, your general what's your general method for it are you going with purpose driven or just kind of like let's just see what we can do if we tweaked this i would say world building driven okay um, like i said noxanon is the continent of light and dark uh, mm -hmm. thousands of years ago, this, this spell of pure darkness was stretched over the entire continent and then it was blown up. So now it's partial and fragmented. So there are these like areas called noctums where like, you know, it's a hundred feet tall and like maybe a mile wide. And inside there are all these monsters that are perfectly adapted to the dark, right? So they thrive on the dark. And if you go in there, it is a magical dark. You can't see. And if you take a torch in there, like it's painful for the creatures and they will jump on you. They will all come at you trying to kill that light and kill you at the same time. So we've got like giant cats in there. We've got this thing called sleets, which are like flying otters with huge fangs and they just kind of slither through the air. Um, we've got uh, gillarns, which are sort of giant bats. We've got this guy that's a steward over this castle, this thing called a naragi inside the uh, the Noctum and his name is Ravalos. And Ravalos is like the steward of this entire Noctum. And, and he lives in this game. He's a, he's like a, 
10 foot, 12 foot tall Raven. Um, and uh, there's just all kinds of all kinds of cool creatures. Not to mention, also of course, dragons. There's a dragon that shows up in book two. Um, Jai Kitakos is his name, and uh, he is a really fun chaotic evil character to play. So we got so many. I mean, this like I said, this is a D and D style fantasy, and in D and D there are dungeon crawls, and in D and D there are monsters galore. We've got the monsters for sure. So with all this talk of monsters, and you've mentioned earlier that you yourself are a parent. Where would you put the age range here? PG-13. PG-13. Yep, it was specifically designed to be PG-13. So, I think that's good. It's just always really good to ask because the things that we think are YA are not always as YA as we think they are yes. just because uh, they have the label. Yeah. And so, I always like to ask. And I've played enough D&D. I know that not all D&D is PG-13. Fair. No, that's true. That's true. So, master dependent. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, in this particular case, um, the the notion was no profanity. I mean, like may, there may be one profane word in a book, right? If, but but generally speaking, none. Um, no, like you know, heavy relationship content. I mean, there's definitely some flirting and there's definitely some some kissing here and there, but like. There might be some fade to black, exactly. you know, that's pretty classic. The door closes and you can infer whatever you want to infer from that. Um, but, so, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's an action novel PG 13. So I, I guess what he's saying doc is I could never write in his world cause I cuss way too much. <laughs> so uh, sure, that's why, <laughs> well, you know, I, I like shooting guns at people and not stabbing them as much. Uh, stabbing that is more. actually what I was going for. So, but anyway, clearly this interview was winding down. So before we wrap this up, was there anything about Ren the Traveler or the Eldros legacy that we didn't ask that you want to tell us? Um, gosh, I think we covered so many bases. Um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's just such a great world. It's such a great world and you got so many creative people working on it. Um, jump into it, jump into it as quickly as you can. Uh, it's it's just a, a whole ton of fun and all the things about fantasy that uh, if you if you like D and D at all that you, you'll love it you'll love it. Okay, so before we let you go, dear listener, I'd like to harken back to the olden days where we remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the readers, the right readers, find the right books. So do your part. That's especially important as they had to port these books over from their original publishing. Um, upload to their own because that's what happens when you buy the rights, which means not all of their reviews transfers. So if you read it and you liked it, please share it because they're, they could use the reviews. It does help uh, the algorithms for Amazon. So, so do your part people. Uh, and with that being said, Todd, can you tell listeners how they can find you? Yeah. So um, for the Eldros Legacy, eldroslegacy.com. And then for me and all the books that I listed that I do personally, it's toddfaunastock.com. That's two D's in Todd. F-A-H-N-E-S-T-O-C-K.com. All right. And you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Uh, it's backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show for Doc, who's almost still awake. We have an email at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. We do check it at least once a week. So uh, if you want to reach out to us, for the podcast, that works. Um, we also have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen. 
at facebook.com backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast we have a facebook page but not a lot of you have liked it so it has no dedicated url but follow it i share book reviews there uh and give you ideas on what to read and share our episodes as they launch uh so do the thing people look it up and, and click the follow button uh, we have a website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades again anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades where for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the lights on people it costs a couple hundred dollars to run this podcast every year and every penny helps us get towards covering that expense so i don't have to sleep on the couch and explain where all the money went uh we can also support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr handley again buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr handley be sure to put that it's for the podcast and i promise that we will add that money to the swear jar and we will be broke in a week that's how that works right doc or, or do they pay us when we swear I, I get that mixed up um you get a lot mixed up i'll explain math later that's more of a one-on-one -on -one session because oh, okay okay well then bring us home doc bring us home so thank you for spending some of your precious time with us we are the blasters and blades podcast on behalf of the absentee nick garter the adult-brained jr who needs to learn his math again i'm seska this was us and we will be back next time same place enjoying our love of nerd culture cheesy jokes and of course picking on jr because what else would we do with our time it helps